it was um, it was Paul's fault. Uh, it, it was Paul's fault, and he knew it. Uh, it was Paul's own fault that he ended up in jail with a bloodied back, having been severely beaten and flogged only a few hours earlier, skin badly torn, bruised and battered, uh, bent double, feet locked apart in stocks. Uh, it must have been agony. Um, I have no idea what that would have been like, and I sincerely and earnestly hope to never find out. But it was Paul's own fault. Furthermore, uh, he knew it was his fault. He should never have cast that demon out of that slave girl. And he knew why. Uh, Well, uh, today we're looking at two texts that feature deliverance ministry, the casting out of unclean spirits from people who possess them. Uh, These texts are mysterious, and they're always mysterious. Uh, But I think that today we can shed some light on them by God's grace. Last week, we we left Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke in the city of Philippi, a significant city, uh, an important Roman outpost in Macedonia. There, they discovered not a synagogue, but they had discovered a place of prayer, a Jewish place of worship by the river. And preaching the gospel there, they'd seen a number of people come to faith in Jesus Christ, including Lydia, the cloth merchant, and her whole household. And so Paul and uh, his entourage went to stay uh, with her. As we pick up the story uh, at verse 16 of chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we understand that that riverside place of prayer had become a regular meeting place for ministry. Verses 16 and 18 tell us about a strange phenomenon that accompanied this ministry. You see, there was a slave girl the text tells us, who had a spirit. Uh, In the Greek, this girl had a spirit of Puthon, or, if you like, she had a python spirit. In, In Roman terms, this meant that she predicted the future as a representative of the Roman god Apollo, Uh, Apollo was understood to be an oracular god, that is to say, a god who spoke oracles, a god who predicted the future. So uh, it's accurately translated for us. The meaning of that is translated for us in the NIV. She had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Uh, From a biblical perspective, of course, we know that she's not a representative of uh, the god Apollo. Rather, uh, she has a demon. Uh, She has an unclean spirit inside of her. Um, It is a significant mistake. I believe it is a significant mistake to want to rationalize this text by attempting to find some explanation for this phenomenon without reference to the supernatural or spiritual. This this isn't show business. This isn't psychosis. This isn't mental illness. This isn't a conjuring trick. The rationale, um, the rational explanation for this is that the girl had an unclean spirit by which she predicted the future. 
And we can be reasonably sure that she did precisely that. She predicted the future. And I imagine she was impressively accurate. Because when we actually get to hear the Spirit speak through this girl in verse 17, she is entirely and unnervingly right. Compelled by this demonic spirit, she followed Paul and his team around, shouting, These men are servants of God Most High, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And what's interesting about that message is that it is language that both the Jews and the Gentiles would have actually understood in much the same way. These men are slaves or servants of the one true, supreme creator God. Their message answers the most important question of all. How can I be saved? How can I be saved from sin, death, judgment, condemnation, hell? We all understand the problem. We might use different language to describe the problem, but we all understand the problem. And each different religion poses a different solution. But, she says, these men actually have the right answer. And she was right. We we read in verse 18 that, in fact, this has been going on for many days, a long time, perhaps weeks. Now, Paul and the apostles, they're no strangers to deliverance ministry. They they know all about it. They know when and how to do it. Uh, They know that they have the, the authority to cast out demons, and they have that authority because they belong to Jesus. They have Christ's authority. They're Christians. If it was right to command this particular spirit out of this particular girl, Paul would have done it right at the start. But he doesn't. He knows it's not the right thing to do. He only does it after his patience breaks. He gets annoyed, very annoyed, and he mucks up. Now, I'm really sure that Paul was a really, really patient guy. I'm sure he was very patient. I'm sure that he was much more patient than I am. And yet, when Paul's patience broke, and when Paul did that, it was like stepping on a landmine or triggering some booby trap. Perhaps one with a very, very short fuse. Tick, tick, tick. Boom! Question. Why would an unclean spirit, by very definition from hell, and therefore fundamentally opposed to God's work, Why would an unclean spirit want to advertise Paul's ministry and to advertise it accurately? I don't know. It's a mystery. I have an answer, but it's a guess. This is my best guess. You see, when you show the world that you know what's going on, you put yourself in a position of power. The spirit actually wasn't advertising Paul and his gospel about Jesus. The Spirit was cleverly advertising the slave girl and her superior spiritual wisdom coming from this python spirit. The Spirit was, rather cleverly, drawing attention to itself. Question. Even if an unclean spirit should choose to go into gospel gospel evangelism, why would you shut it down? 
I mean, here she is, free advertising. Why not just keep this thing going? Well, when it comes to gospel ministry, both the message and the method have to be in alignment. You can't put a gun to somebody's head and says, say, become a Christian now! Um, the, the, the message is, is about God's love, and so the delivery has to be loving. In the same way, Jesus did not walk through towns shouting at people. Unclean spirits, here's one thing about unclean spirits. Unclean spirits love to disrupt Christian ministry. And that's what was happening. It was disruptive behavior. A second thing about unclean spirits is they love to distract from Christian ministry. And with all of this flamboyant, clairvoyant behavior going on, people would be lining up to talk to the slave girl, not to Paul. It was distracting. Thirdly, unclean spirits love to torment This shouting is tormenting Paul. It's clearly tormenting Paul. And I think it is safe to assume that it was also tormenting the young girl too. She would not have experienced any freedom in this. She would have felt compelled to shout, unable to not shout. It would have been tormenting for her. When you find compulsive behavior that torments, it is reasonable to suspect the activity of unclean spirits. And when you encounter the presence of unclean spirits, it is reasonable to look for compulsive behavior that torments. Well, if that's true... Question, why was it the wrong thing for Paul to cast this demon out? Well, the answer is that deliverance ministry is actually for God's people. It's not for not God's people. One does not cast unclean spirits out of people who don't belong to God. For us, therefore, today, um, whenever deliverance ministry arises in the context of pastoral care, when confronted by somebody who needs help in this area, the first question is, is, are you a Christian? Secondly, have you been baptized? If the answer to either of these questions is no, then, then you don't proceed until the answer to both questions is yes. Once they're a Christian, once then they've been baptized, then you can proceed with respect to deliverance ministry in a helpful and constructive way. And that was the common understanding of deliverance ministry in the first century. That if you cast all the demons out of a person who did not belong to God, yet they weren't weren't repentant or they weren't covered by God's covenant or there wasn't faith, then all you really would have done is set their house in order, cleaned it up in order for it to be overrun all over again and the state of that man at the end would have been worse than it had been at the beginning. Nature abhors a vacuum. And that's as true spiritually as it is physically. Where the Holy Spirit isn't, there's opportunity. When we understand that principle, we see Jesus' conversation with the Syrophoenician woman in a whole new light. Jesus will not cast the demon out of the little girl, out of the child, Because her mother does not belong to God. The child would have been worse off if he had. What's needed is a conversation with mum. And that's what we have the privilege of listening to. 
Jesus, in Mark uh, chapter 7, verse 27, he doesn't insult the woman. He doesn't call her a dog. That's a common misunderstanding of this text. However, his mode of speech is mysterious to us because we don't usually speak to each other in riddles or in proverbs. But in the ancient world, that was an everyday thing to do, to talk in terms of figures of speech. So then, a woman who does not belong to God by way of covenant, she's, she's Syrophoenician, she's, she's not an Israelite, nor has she been baptized because John the Baptist only baptized Jews. This woman begs Jesus to remove an unclean spirit from her daughter. Now, I think it says in verse 25 that that the little girl was was demon-possessed. Actually, that's a mistranslation and a misunderstanding. The little girl was not possessed by an unclean spirit. Rather, in Greek, she was demonized. That is to say, she possessed a demon. She had an unclean spirit in the same way that you might have a cold or have cancer. She wasn't possessed by it. Rather, she possessed it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that she was either physically or mentally unwell. We just don't know. She might have been both or neither. Or just one or the other as a result of this unclean spirit's activity. And Jesus doesn't refuse to cast the demon out. But he does answer proverbially along the lines of, Hey, do you prepare dinner for your children and then give it to their pets? And rather creatively, the mother replies proverbially too. Well, that might not be the first intention, but it always ends up happening anyway. And actually, if you've got a dog, perhaps if you've got a cat, but especially if you've got a dog, you know this is always true. They always feed off your table anyway. By accident or design or mischievous behavior, they end up eating the same stuff you do. Was Jesus impressed by the lady's creativity? No. What was it about that reply that allowed Jesus to proceed with the deliverance ministry? It was her faith. She's clearly putting her faith in the God of the Bible. What she's saying very cleverly, what she's saying basically is, yes, I know that Jews are the children of God. I know that salvation is from the Jews, but I also know that God's salvation ultimately is for all the nations of the world. Everyone one day will eat the bread of heaven. And she's right. She's saying nothing more than the prophets have been saying for a thousand years. And if she wasn't right... None of us would be here this morning except save those who come descended straight from Jacob. And that certainly doesn't include me. The mother is in a place of spiritual authority over her child. Her decision to put her faith in the God of the Bible, to believe what the prophets have spoken, that's a step of faith. And God will always vindicate the one who trusts in him. She's trusting in the God of the Bible. And parents are in spiritual authority over their children. The demon can be commanded to go without jeopardizing the future welfare of the child because those who put their faith in God walk in the protection of God. And if it's true that those who put their faith in God walk in the protection of God, then how the heck did Paul end up in jail? Well, the slave girl... Although she'd heard the gospel, she wasn't a Christian. She hadn't made a faith commitment. She had not been baptized. 
Paul knew he couldn't cast this demon out without putting her in danger of worse. And he resisted, and he resisted, and he resisted, but eventually he snapped. And he commanded it to go, and the unclean spirit left because it had to. Paul is a Christian. He has Christ's authority over the spiritual realms. But it, it, was, like that, it was like that booby trap, wasn't it? Maybe with a short fuse. Tick, 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 boom. The owners were furious. The hope of making a fortune was gone. Seizing Paul and Silas, they go into court. The prosecution opens with these words, literally. These men are disturbing our city being Jews. And if you think that smacks of anti-Semitism, you're right. These men being Jews are an unwelcome influence on our fine city. Anti-Semitism is always an indicator, spiritually, of something very unhealthy going on. And what's unhealthy here is that this is a city under tight control from below. That's what the real problem is. The accusation continues in verse 21, and they are advocating customs not lawful for us to accept or practice being Romans. Was that true? Well, it was neither true or untrue. From the perspective of Roman law, Judaism was a legal religion. It was not illegal to be Jewish, and therefore it was not illegal to convert to Judaism. Paul and Silas are preaching Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. However, they would need to be very, very careful with how they articulated that. I mean, the gospel proclamation, Jesus Christ is Lord, to Roman ears, that would sound like a very direct challenge to Caesar. And if that's what the Roman authorities thought you were saying, that Caesar is not the supreme authority, then you'd be crucified. Anyway, that the crowd goes berserk and the magistrates can't believe their ears and without giving Paul and Silas any opportunity to speak to these accusations, Paul and Silas are stripped beaten, flogged, chained, and jailed. And what's interesting here is the extraordinary blindness of that crowd. The blindness, of the the blind hatred of it. I mean, Paul has challenged both culture and commerce, and that's never going to win you friends. You're always going to cop it in the neck. The gospel does that. Humanly speaking, that's what's happening here. Psychologically, this is very easy to understand. But the blindness of it, nobody stops to consider the obvious. That being that Paul, a representative of Jesus, has manifested way more authority than the slave girl, a representative of of Apollo. He commanded that spirit to go in Jesus' name and he just fled. Vroom, gone. I mean, you really need to think about that, don't you? Especially if you believe in Apollo. I mean, the evidence is right in front of their eyes. What do we have here? We have blind eyes. How do you get blind eyes? Well, we just read it in the psalm. Idolatry. Worshipping something other than God. Blindness. But, you know, when it comes to booby traps, two can play at that game. And, And now someone enters the picture who really knows what they're doing. And here is the fuse, here is the trigger, verse 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying songs of praise to God. 
and the other prisoners were listening to them. Tick, tick, tick. Boom! Verse 26. And suddenly a great earthquake happened that shook the foundations of the prison and immediately all the doors and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Somewhere deep underground, a bomb went off. Metaphorically speaking, not a real bomb. What really happened was a random thing happened. There's great tension building up in the, in the, in the, in the, in the tectonic plates, tension in the earth's crust. It was a violent earthquake, it says, perhaps magnitude 8, perhaps releasing in the order of 6 million tons of TNT explosive equivalent. An unimaginable amount of power, somewhere deep below Macedonia or perhaps deep below the Adriatic Sea or perhaps deep below Turkey. I don't know. But um, uh, this particular region of the earth is very prone to earthquakes. Um, Nasty ones, big ones. Earthquakes there are common. However, this, even though it's just a random thing, a chance thing, it's clearly a miracle of coincidence performed by somebody who really knows what they're doing. I mean, it's powerful enough to be described as violent. It's violent enough to break stone foundations. Yet no one was hurt. That's, that's amazing. Um, all the doors were opened and all the chains were busted, presumably at the point at which they attached to the wall or the floor, and yet again, no one was hurt. That's astonishing. An unimaginable amount of energy applied with scalpel precision. This guy really knows what he's doing. And you know what? It was just the right time too. It happened at just the right time because there was enough time for a gospel presentation, a whole household to be baptized, more follow-up teaching and prayer, wounds to be dressed and, he- and cleaned, a meal to be made and consumed, singing and praising and worship, hugs and kisses all around, all before dawn. Just the right place, just the right time. Somebody has entered the picture who really knows what they're doing. Well, Let's look at a couple more details and then we'll draw all these elements together. Here's a question. Why was the jailer about to commit suicide when he thought the prisoners had escaped? Well, actually, that's quite simple. In the ancient world, the standard punishment for letting criminals uh, escape was death. It was their life. It was your life for theirs. Um, He was figuring that it would be swifter and less painful if he just did it himself rather than uh, waiting for his bosses to find out. Question, why didn't Paul and Silas use the earthquake as an opportunity to escape? Answer, because the love of Christ gives us love for others. Paul and Silas knew they couldn't go anywhere without placing that man's life in danger. Question, we expect the jailer to ask Paul, why haven't you escaped? Instead, he asks What must I do to be saved? Why does he ask that question? Well, I don't know, but undoubtedly, this man has been listening for weeks to a young girl shouting, These men are servants of God Most High who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. He's also witnessed something else, which may have been one of the strangest and most mysterious sights he had ever seen. Two men in prison, each having been subject to unthinkable humiliation and degradation, now certainly in intense physical pain. And what are they doing? They're praising and worshipping and thanking God. 
in songs and psalms and prayers. What power could account for such things? And, and then, when they had the chance to escape, instead of hot-footing it for the hills, they stayed behind for the sake of his welfare. How could such love, such sacrificial love for strangers ever be explained? Fundamentally, he sees something that we also must see. Someone very powerful is out there. Someone is working things out in an extraordinary way to save Paul and Silas. And the jailer wants a piece of that. Paul's answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And you too will be saved, you and your household. Question, do you believe? Question, why in the morning had the magistrates changed their minds and decided to release Paul and Silas? It's an odd decision. We don't know what the answer is. Um, It's not like Paul and Silas were sentenced to one night's jail and that was that. No, serious charges had been leveled against them. They face the possibility of crucifixion. Suddenly the authorities just want them gone. Why? Well, I think probably in some ways you see the ancient mind was cleverer than the modern mind. The modern mind assumes that the material or the physical explanation for any given phenomenon is the right one and the powerful one. Um, In contrast, the ancient mind assumed that the spiritual explanation for any phenomenon was the right one or the powerful one. And actually, they were right about that, although material uh, material explanations have their their use. Um, I mean, why did the earthquake happen? Well, we now know that it's got to do with the fact that... that, um, that, uh, uh, that Arabia is, is, is crashing into Turkey at the rate of three centimeters a year and tension builds up and random things happen. Um, although, sadly, uh, all of that material knowledge gives us limited predictive power, as we've discovered yet again, much to our pain and grief in the last week. What was the spiritual explanation for that phenomenon on that day? Well, actually, Jesus was releasing Paul and Silas from jail. And that is... Utterly life-changing, if you really understand it and its implications. And almost certainly, these magistrates, they were awoken at midnight by an earthquake. And I reckon they just had that young girl's voice ringing in their ears. These men are servants of God Most High who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And they'd spent the rest of the night in a cold sweat thinking to themselves, What have we done? Question. Why did Paul in the morning suddenly go all high and mighty and obstinate and refuse to come out unless he's escorted from the prison? Why did that happen? Well, you see, Paul and Silas, they they knew for sure that they're leaving town. That performance was put on for the sake of the other Christians that they'd be leaving behind. You see, they'd been stripped, beaten, flogged, chained, and imprisoned without a trial, without the opportunity of defending themselves against some very serious allegations, and that was against Roman law. Furthermore, both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. If they leave quietly, the populace would assume that Paul and Silas were guilty but had been acquitted. That would make them outlaws, and it would bring shame and loss of face to anyone associated with them. 
no one would have anything to do with Lydia or the jailer or any of the other converts if they left under such circumstances. Getting the magistrates to escort them out was a public way of saying, nothing has been proven, these men are not being pardoned, rather they are being acquitted, they are innocent. It is for the sake of the gospel, therefore, that Paul stage manages his exit so that gospel ministry can continue in his absence. Paul is being true to his working principle, let nothing jeopardize gospel ministry. Right then, let's uh, draw these threads together by asking one last question. Why did Paul and Silas' time of praise and worship How and why did that cause an earthquake? How are those two things related? Well, sitting in that prison cell, back bleeding, bruised and battered, Job-like, no intact skin probably from head to foot, like Job, it certainly put Paul in a place of decision, didn't it, as to what he was going to do. Um, Paul would have understood that actually he had done the wrong thing. He should not have exorcised that demon under those conditions. Paul would have understood the direct causality between him doing that and Satan chucking everything at him. He would have understood, you know, oh boy, I went outside the limits and bang, did I get hit for that one. What's Paul going to do? Tell you what I would have done. I would have cried and I would have felt very sorry for myself and very confused and I very likely would have decided that all this Christian ministry stuff was too hard and too dangerous and maybe I should stick to something safe and sedate and risk-free like Formula One racing car driving. (laughs) I would have wimped out. I'm easily frightened, easily intimidated. I occasionally get what I'm about to say and put it into practice. But I I pray, God, please don't test me in this. I will do it, but please don't test me. I'm a man of weak faith. You see, Paul doesn't wimp out. He worships. He praises. He thanks. He prays. Even when stuff has gone seriously wrong, even when it's all his fault. And you know what? That is spiritually utter dynamite. We saw something very much like this in David's life recently. Do you you remember, if you were with us, David did the wrong thing and everything went to hell in a handbag. Do you remember that strip raiding incident involving the Amalekites? It was all David's fault and his men were ready to stone him to death. But what did he do? He ran to God. He asked God for help. And he trusted God completely. He asked God to clean up the mess, even though it was his mess. And God came powerfully into the picture. Extraordinary things happened for David. Um, for Paul, do you think that dawn, do you think Paul, do you think Paul, I've, I've, I know what he was thinking. I, I know he's thinking, boy, my back hurts. Boy, my legs are sore. But that was so worth it. I know that I suffered. But that was so worth it to see the jailer and his whole family come to faith in Christ. Thank you, God. That was, I know I suffered, but boy, it was worth it. 
and, and, and now I'm leaving. I have to leave, I know. But, but the jailer is a Christian. Now fancy that. The corrections officer in this town is a Christian. Isn't that going to have extraordinary influence? Isn't that wonderful? Thank you, God. You see, if you want to get involved in real spiritual warfare, then start singing, start praising, start thanking God, especially when things go wrong, especially when you're suffering, and especially when it's all your fault. That's just dynamite. Paul writes, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And now that we know some of the stuff that Paul's been through, those words are extraordinary, aren't they? It'll be dynamite when we do it too, because Satan hates it. Satan just hates it when he chucks everything at us, and we start praising God. Boy, that annoys him. In this pericope, in this story, we see that Jesus saves those who trust him, who trust in him. We see that Jesus has every power at his disposal. You know that Jesus has all the powers of hell at his disposal. They're all completely in denial over that, but it's true. Jesus has all the powers of time and all the powers of this natural world at his disposal as well as all the powers of heaven. Jesus said, all power and authority has been given to me. Nothing can resist his will. He cannot be outplayed, outwitted, or outmaneuvered. God releases his power, real power indeed, power made perfect in weakness, power that turns curses into blessings, power that is loving. God puts his saving power at the disposal of those who love him, those who trust him, those who have been called according to his purposes in Christ Jesus. In Jesus, the Lord is with you. Amen.